back of the sermon notes page, you'll see there some questions for this afternoon from our Heidelberg Catechism, Q&As uh, 83, 4, and 5. So let's read those together responsively. This is the last section of our catechism that deals with uh, things that we are to believe. We'll come uh, next Lord's Day, Lord willing, to uh, the things that we are to do. So how we are to respond to the gospel in gratitude and thankfulness. So uh, let's uh, read this last section dealing with God's grace to us in Jesus Christ and the things that we're to believe. Uh, What are the keys to the kingdom? Question 83 asks, and what's the answer? The preaching of the holy gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. Question 84 asks, how does preaching the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that, as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. And then finally, Question 85, how is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who, after repeated personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church. Well, as we come to the end of this uh, second and longest section of the Heidelberg Catechism, the things that we believe as believers, as Christians here in this church, I want to remind you that, uh, as the introduction there says, that Jesus is king and that he has a kingdom. And so, uh, kids are following along, I'm just going to read those little sentences for you and help you uh, fill out the answers. And this all is to show us that Jesus is our king and that he has a kingdom, and that we belong to that kingdom as his citizens. So first of all, Jesus is king, right? That's the most basic uh, confession of all. Jesus is king. He's in charge. He has all power and authority and rule uh, forever and ever. Jesus is king. And as king, the Bible says in Psalm number 72, he has dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So he's the king and he has dominion from, from sea to sea. The whole world belongs to him. It's all his realm. It's all his domain. Uh, it's the place where he rules and it's the place where he, uh, he has uh, his kingship exercised. He's establishing his kingdom, third, on earth as it is in heaven. 
So this is one of the great things with the Bible is that we know that God is king and that he rules over all things. And of course that means that he reigns and rules over heaven or that, that realm of eternity where he dwells, uh, where all the angels dwell. They worship him. They serve him day and night in his holy temple in heaven. But he's also establishing his kingdom on earth, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. So practically speaking, that means that it doesn't look like Jesus is the king in every single corner of the earth. So it takes time and it takes his power to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Next, we know from Jesus' own words in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus because he's been raised. And so by his resurrection power, all authority is his. And from the right hand of God, so he's ascended up, as Psalm 47 we sang, he, from the right hand of God, he gifts. He gifts his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. He gifts his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as king, he's establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And he does that by giving gifts to his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then that last little bullet point there, uh, these gifted representatives, because he's gifted certain people with certain gifts uh, to do certain things. He's gifted us all, of course, but he specifically gifts certain people uh, in in terms of church governance and leadership. Uh, These gifted representatives, Ephesians 4 describes, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Those are the particular gifted people in his kingdom. Uh, he's given them keys. So uh, notice that little blank there. He's given them keys to open and shut the doors to the kingdom. So he's king. The keys belong to him. But he gives his keys, or he might say he gives a copy of his keys to those who rule in his place. Maybe you've, uh, your mom or dad has lost a key once to the house and he only had one left. And you need more than one, of course, because... They might lose that one too, so they go to Lowe's, they go to a place where they make keys, and they make a copy. Jesus has the original keys, uh, so to speak, and he's given to the church and its leadership particular uh, those particular keys, but it is a copy to use to open and to shut the doors of the kingdom. So in, in, in historic Christian and Protestant Reformational churches like ours, uh, the emphasis of church government, why that's so important. You know, we have pastors, we have elders, we have deacons, we have leaders and so forth. That's important because it's a, it's a demonstration to, to us, to the world, that the Lord Jesus Christ is king, that he reigns. Uh, the church is not just a, a, a democracy. It's not just uh, a, a crowd. We've seen that in the book of Acts. There's big crowds at times that gather together to do lots of stuff. The church isn't like that. It's meant to be orderly and structured. Uh, and the reason is because it shows us that Jesus is king, that he's king. But from our vantage point, we might say, well, it also shows us, uh, or we, we hope it would show uh, to people who are new and newer to our kind of doing church, uh, it's a way of showing our humility, that we believe that the church is not the pastor's church, it's not you know, Pastor Danny's church, doesn't belong to the elders, doesn't belong to the deacons, doesn't even belong to you and me, uh, to, to any of us. The church belongs to Jesus. And so having leaders is a way of showing that, to show our humility, that we bow to him, uh, and that everything that we can do and have only comes from him. So um, the idea of keys, then, 
Jesus as king has keys and he's given a copy of those keys, we might say, to those who lead the church to open and to shut the doors of his heavenly kingdom. So let's just turn to a couple passages. This idea of the imagery of keys. The Bible doesn't speak of keys a whole bunch. But uh, interestingly, as we go back and look in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there's a, there's a key theme, uh, a key theme about keys uh, that, that comes up again and again and again. So Isaiah 22, uh, verse 22. Isaiah 22, verse 22. Here, uh, just quickly, the, the prophet is speaking of uh, there are false stewards and there are trustworthy stewards. False stewards or untrustworthy stewards uh, and true trustworthy stewards. And in verse 22, the, the Lord says to the prophet Isaiah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He's speaking of, of trustworthy stewards, right? Those who are in charge, temporarily in charge of the kingdom. Uh, because the leadership had forfeited that. So God is going to raise up trustworthy leaders and on his shoulder, the key of the house of David. That's that imagery of kingship. The house of David, is the, is the, that's the house from which all the kings come and the Messiah, the promised Savior is going to come. Uh, he shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So there's this idea that in the Old Testament, the leadership of Israel had the keys of the kingdom, the keys of the house of David. They forfeited the right to have those keys, and God's going to transfer it to others. That takes us into the New Testament. Interestingly, Jesus speaks of this uh, in a couple of places. On the one hand, in Luke 11, he says this. So Luke, Luke 11 at verse 52, and he's speaking to the leadership of the Israelites. And he says in Luke 11 at verse number 52, uh, woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. The prophet spoke of ancient Israel. Jesus applies it to his time, especially the lawyers and the scribes and the Pharisees and all those who are the apparatus of leadership, uh, they themselves didn't notice. They didn't even enter into the kingdom themselves, and they kept other people out. They forfeited. They lost. They took away the key of knowledge, of knowledge into the kingdom of the Lord, because they turned it into a place of of self-righteousness and works. And the key of the kingdom was no longer, as it were, now, Jesus has those keys. So, Revelation, I just mentioned two verses there. Uh, Revelation 1, verse 18. So, the Lord spoke about who he's taken it away from uh, in Isaiah and also in Luke. But then in Revelation, we know, we know who ultimately has the keys. It's Jesus. And so, in one eighteen of Revelation, uh, he is described there as the living one. Fear not, I'm the first, the last, the living one, right? He's been raised up. I died, behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Not just the keys of the house of David, but the very keys of death and Hades itself. Jesus Christ has. And then over in uh, chapter 3, the church uh, in Philadelphia, he says this to the church in Philadelphia. The words of the Holy One, the True One. This is the language from the prophet Isaiah. Who has the key of David. He took that key away from those false leaders in Isaiah 22. 
the lawyers in, uh, of the Pharisees uh, in Luke 11, they, they themselves got rid of that key of knowledge. Who has the key of the house of David? It's Jesus who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Where did that language come from? Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He's the one that the Lord puts on the shoulder, this big key. Because the keys of the gates into cities in an ancient world, uh, as the imagery describes for us, these aren't just little pocket keys that you and I have for our door. These are like large you know, keys. Sometimes uh, in our society, um, let's say you know, an athlete or a politician or you know, a movie star or, or some hero, you know, a fireman or, or a policeman or somebody who's done something really, really important. Sometimes we'll have at the city hall, the mayor will come out and we'll have a ceremonial uh, giving of the keys, uh, the key of the city. You've probably seen that. And that ceremonial key is usually pretty big if you've seen uh, that kind of a ceremony. So that idea of having, you know, on a big ring hanging over your shoulder, that's how heavy they were. These were made out of iron. Uh, and so Jesus has that key, uh, not just of hell itself and death, but also the key of the house of David. And he gives, so to speak, a copy uh, or copies of that key to those who lead the church. And so that's that famous passage from Matthew chapter 16. Uh, at verse 13 uh, through 20, where Jesus speaks of those keys. And so Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Son of the living God, verse 16. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, Bar, Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, against the church. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so we take that to be that Peter confesses that he is Messiah, the Son of God, and on the basis of that confession... He is an under-shepherd. He's a leader uh, of the church, and the, the keys belong to those who lead, but not just merely because they lead. That's the era of the Roman Catholic Church. It's not just because you claim to be the followers of Peter that you have the keys. No, Peter had to confess Christ, and God had to reveal that to him. So it's Peter as the one who confesses Jesus Christ rightly, uh, and to those, he's given these keys. And well, what are these keys? What are these keys? And that the church's leadership are gifted with by the ascended king, our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he's given these, key, uh, these keys, which are preaching and discipline. Preaching and discipline. So let's turn to John chapter 3. I think I listed it as our text. Uh, John chapter 3, briefly, uh, at verse 31, uh, down through verse 36. Here is John the baptizer, John the Baptist. And some, some disciples came uh, between uh, John's disciples and a Jew over purifying, purif- rites of purification. Uh, and they say, Rabbi, to John the Baptist, he who was with you across the Jordan, Jesus, when he baptized, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him, right? Jesus is getting a bigger crowd than you, Rabbi. And then John says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, I'm the Messiah, but I have uh, been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, 
This joy of mine is now complete. Uh, he must increase, but I must <clears throat> decrease. And then he describes the message that uh, is preaching of the gospel, uh, this message of preaching that the one who's come from above is above all. This is Jesus. He's, come from, he's the one who came from above. He's above all. Uh, he is of the earth, belongs to the earth. He's speaking of himself. Uh, he speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he's seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. And then uh, he goes down and says that uh, for he whom God has sent, verse 34, utters the words of God. Here's Jesus. He's uttering the very words of God. He's preaching for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. And then here's the, here's the gospel message. Here's how preaching opens and shuts God's heavenly kingdom. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's what the preaching of the gospel is. It's saying that whoever believes has already eternal life. So how does this metaphorical key open up the, the, the gate to the celestial city, to this great eternal kingdom? Because preaching the gospel says to every single one of you, that Christ died for sins and he was raised up for, justifi- for justifying sinners. And every one of you who believes that has already eternal life. John goes, uh, Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 5 that if you believe, you've already been raised up. There's a final resurrection to come. But the one who hears my voice now, he's already been raised. It's as simple as that. The gospel is very simple. We're the ones who make it hard. The gospel is very simple. Jesus Christ has done everything there is to save sinners. Everyone who believes that, the key turns, the doors unlock, the gate opens, and you go into everlasting life. That, that's how preaching opens the kingdom. How does preaching close the gate and lock that, that, that gate to the kingdom? Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. That's the bad news. Right? And so as, as, a, as a church, it's very, very important for us, uh, me as the pastor, as your pastor, and, uh, and for the elders who are, who are overseer, overseers of the pastor's preaching and you who are the uh, recipients of this preaching. It's very, very important for you and, 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 uh, to realize and for me to do is to constantly say this. Sometimes you'll hear the buzzwords, we'll use the sort of the Christianese slogan uh, that we need to preach the law and the gospel, but that's the reality of it. The law and the gospel, that's just a code word, or that's just like a shorthand way of saying we've got to preach bad news and good news. Every time I say, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, that's the gospel, and the, and the kingdom of God is open to you. But I say the opposite is true as well. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, that door is shut. You're already in condemnation. You're already under the wrath of God. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, Romans 1. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So we have to preach and you have to be receptive to hearing the bad and the good, the law and the gospel. The kingdom is shut to unbelievers. It is opened to believers. That's really the heart of the message of what, uh, what a Reformed church is all about. And then secondly, there's the key of discipline. The key of discipline. Uh, it opens and it shuts. Those, an- those questions and answers tell us 
uh, if a person is repentant and, uh, and they are living a godly life, the kingdom is open to them. Uh, but the one who is, uh, believes in false doctrines or who lives in an ungodly way, uh, the kingdom of God is shut to them. Now, I want to look at two texts that illustrate this, um, where Paul writes to us, to the Corinthians, uh, of what discipline looked like in the first century. So 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 5, I keep saying 1, now that I got Caden telling me I can't say 1 Corinthians, I keep saying 1 Corinthians, okay? So former President Trump always said 1 Corinthians and made fun of him. So I started, make, I started using it to make fun, and then all of a sudden he pointed out, you keep saying 1 Corinthians, Dad, and saying uh, 2 Corinthians, it's 1 Corinthians, it's 2 Corinthians. All right, fine, it's 1 Corinthians. So uh, chapter 5. I think they said that about him, there was a mock to him, right? Because it meant it mean he, he didn't really know what the Bible was about, which I probably believe is true. Uh, I know what the Bible is, and hopefully you, you think I know what the Bible is. So 1 Corinthians, right? Paul's letter, the first letter to the Corinthians. Um, chapter 5, chapter 5. Um, he, he writes here, we just read from Romans 1 about sexual immorality, and he writes here uh, that in the church in Corinth, this is one of the, the, like the, the bad sort of discipline case that they had to deal with, that in the church of Corinth, that there was a there was a man in the church who was um, he was engaged in sexual relationship with his stepmom, and he says there that uh, that you're doing a thing that's not even tolerated among pagans in that society. Uh, a man has his father's wife; that's his stepmom, uh, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. That's what church discipline is. It's to, as the answer told us, we, we do multiple loving admonitions as believers. Matthew 18 goes on to say, you know, if somebody sins, you go to him directly. If they won't listen to you, you take someone else with you. So there are two or three witnesses. If they don't listen to the two of you or the three of you, then you tell the church, the leadership of the church. And if they still don't listen, then they are to be uh, put under church discipline. And so that's what he's saying here, that this man should be removed. This is, a, this is a, a scandalous, gross, we say, public outward sin that is bringing shame on the church. The church is living in a more, uh, or is, is approving more ungodliness than the world would even tolerate. Now he describes what that looked like. So the point of discipline he describes here is to close the kingdom to a person, why? Ultimately, to open the door so that they can come back in. That's what discipline is meant to do. It is, to, it is a form of punishment, but it's a discipline to show you your sins so that you would come to your senses and repent and return and believe and be received. So he says, For although I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, this is what church, church is, is to assemble in the name of the Lord. And my spirit is present, because they would read his letter, and so as it were, his spirit was there with them. With the power of our Lord Jesus, right, this is the keys, the power of the keys. You are to deliver this man to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh. Why? That sounds very harsh. That sounds harsh. Why would we ever do that? Here's why. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Church discipline for us as, as those who have to exercise it as pastor and elders, 
Uh, it's, it, it, it must never devolve into mere punishment. And sadly, that does happen in churches, that it becomes just punishment. And it becomes personal power trip. No, it's always that, that delivering a person over to the, the realm of Satan is always for restoration. We discipline our kids, never just to discipline them. We don't just punish them for punishment's sake. That's sin. We discipline them to correct and to train and to show them and to cause them to come back and obviously in a childish way to say I'm sorry and that's what repentance is for a child. But as they get older, to amend their ways, to live a different way, to think differently and so forth. And we, we pray and trust to live in a godly way. But that discipline notice has put you out into Satan's realm, so to speak, so that on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, that person's soul or spirit may be saved. So notice the kingdom of God was closed to this man, as Paul was saying. Why? We pray and trust that as he's out there in that realm of Satan, he's living in a life of sin in a way that even the pagans won't even tolerate, that he'll come around. It'll come around. And some of us in this very room, we have, we have children, uh, and we know other people who have children, and, or loved ones, or family members that are in this situation. It's always to bring them back. And that bringing back might be a day, it might be their entire life. That's what Paul says there. That they would come to know Christ and to be, uh, be restored, be saved on the day of the Lord. And we might, we might even say that church discipline, outward earthly church discipline, at times looks like it wasn't successful. How do we know the outcome? How do we know that a person didn't repent and didn't come? And they did so because they were told that what they were doing was sinful. And so the application for us as elders and for pastors is to, is to stand up for what God says and to do what God says. Because even though we might not see the fruit of it, we know the Lord is faithful to his word. Now, let's go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and uh, verse 6 and following. Many scholars think that this, um, that, that Paul is making an illustration here of this very same man. That the man that he said put out into the realm of, or deliver his body to Satan to be destroyed so that his spirit would be saved. Many people believe that that same man did come back and was restored. And, and Paul's describing that uh, in, this, in this context. He says, if anyone's caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure uh, not to put it too severely. To all of you, right? The church's sin affects the whole body. So a person who's caused pain by their life, <clears throat> by their choices, even by their doctrine, has caused pain to the whole body because the whole body is connected even just getting a stubbed toe that registers up all the way up to your head uh, up to your brain and it hurts for such a one this punishment by the majority is enough so you should you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him so we think he's describing that very same man right he was punished by the majority right he was put out by the the church's leadership that's enough so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. We Discipline is sorrowful, it is hard, and it's painful. But there's a point where it can go too far, and, and you can, you can over-discipline, is what he's saying, and cause excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, for I have forgiven anything. 
has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So he was received back. So Paul is telling them, you have to receive him. They, at first they were very, they were, at first they didn't want to discipline. Paul writes them, he shames them, they discipline him. And now that they've done what Paul said, now they're over excessively disciplined, they won't receive the guy back. And Paul has to correct them again. Receive him. I've already forgiven him. You've got to do it now, yourselves. So God's kingdom discipline is a, is a tangible way when we, when we have to undergo that harsh, painful thing we call church discipline, which we, have, we deal with. Uh, we, we know those under discipline, uh, and eventually it gets known to the church. But there are many, many times where people are under discipline that you don't even know about, and praise the Lord, they've come back. Just a conversation, just a one Sunday, don't take the Lord's Supper, sometimes does the trick. But sometimes it goes all the way to that, that extreme remedy of excommunication where a person is banned and barred from Holy Communion and from the church's fellowship. But we pray and trust as we know in this very church. Uh, we've seen the Lord use that to bring others to him. So that's how it opens and that's how it shuts. It shuts by putting a person out so that they would come back knock on the door, and the church would not be excessive, but turn the key again, open, let him, her back in. So, so we think about this wonderful teaching that Jesus Christ is king, uh, and church discipline is a part of that, and the preaching of the word is a part of that. That's how it's exercised amongst us, and we pray and we trust uh, as, uh, as pastor and elders that we preach that message of law and gospel and we exercise those keys uh, that key of discipline in a loving way in a loving humble under shepherd kind of way so that all of us all of us are constantly coming into that door into that gate and hearing those beautiful and wonderful words of jesus christ that he says to us well done good and faithful servant he says to us come to me all who labor and who are heavy laden i will give you rest He says to us constantly those wonderful words that he loves the world, that he gave himself for us, his body and blood offered for us. So as you hear the word every Sunday, even as we have to exercise discipline from time to time, I pray and trust that you would uh, know that this is a way of Jesus showing his loving, kingly rule over your life to bring you, to bring you ultimately into that heavenly kingdom to see him face to face. Let's thank him and give him praise. If you turn together uh, with me on the order of service, let's pray um, for a few minutes here. Um, just briefly going to uh, skip ahead to uh, uh, just a quick prayer. And if you'd like to pray aloud, feel free to do so. And then we'll pray that prayer of thanksgiving on the backside together. So let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would bless us this afternoon as we hear the word and as we receive the sacrament to the Lord's Supper. As we come together in Jesus' name, we ask that you would uh, continue to shepherd us and guide us and and. and uh, Uh, direct us more and more uh, to following after our Lord Jesus Christ, to love him, to serve him, to follow the word. Give us courage as leaders to do that. Uh, Give us uh, humility as leaders in in doing that. Uh, For all of us as members of the church, as the whole body here, Lord, that you would give us uh, receptiveness to the things that we hear and the things that we see uh, the leaders doing, so that all together, Lord, we would uh, be a cohesive, unified body of our Lord Jesus Christ to show his love Uh, and his care for us. And so we ask all this in Jesus' name.